Hello everyone, this is Mike Taylor, co-host of A Positive Jam. Today, Daniel and I are joined by writer and comedian Sean Westfall to talk about Sweet Pain, track nine on the Hold Steady's 2004 debut album, The Hold Steady Almost Killed Me. If you come this far, you probably know that Daniel sounds like this. The song's called Sweet Pain. And for reference, Sean sounds like this. Is, is it trademarked? Did, did Jello trademark that place? Here's what you need to know about Sweet Pain. First of all, Sean founded an improv comedy theater called The Unified Scene, which gets its name from a line in this song. As for the song itself, Sweet Pain starts a little bluntly and rough, and it takes a while for it to round into form. There's at least one song on every Hold Steady album that does a lot of connective work for the longer term narrative, and we think that Sweet Pain is that song on this album. That said, the strength of Sweet Pain is its sense of place and some of the jarring juxtapositions between a more mellow sound and some really harsh, violent lyrics. We come to the conclusion, more or less, that this is one of the more successful connector songs in the whole studies catalog. So for a lot of people, this might be sort of more of one of the more downbeat tracks, but I think we come to some really interesting discoveries in the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Let's do it. Track nine, Sweet Pain. Sean, when I told you that I wanted you to join for this song, your response was, and, and I'll paraphrase, please, please, Mike, any song but Sweet Pain. It's the worst. <laughs> I can't do it. No. I can tell you, what was it you said? Like, I'm like a professor of English literature with a close reading of James Joyce if we do Separation Sunday, but Sweet Pain, you gotta be kidding me, man. I think you said more literally that it's one of your least favorite songs on the album. And I think to me, it is also one of the weaker songs. We'll get into some things that I do like about it, but let's start there. So what, what about Sweet Pain? What provoked that reaction in you, Sean? Well, I, again, I think that you're exaggerating uh, a bit. <laughs> no. When I, think. I mean, you know, being compelled to come on, to, to come on the show and talk about a, a, you know, any song by The Hold Steady is kind of like being compelled to walk into your favorite candy store and pick your, pick, pick some candy. It's like, and only they're they're out of your favorite, so you Butterfinger. Have to pick some, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. God, I wanted Milky Ways. All right, I'll have a Butterfinger. Right? <laughs> so it's not a, you know, it, this is not painful talking about one of my favorite bands on the planet and one of my favorite favorite one of my favorite of their albums. I'm just I don't see the song as I, I, I there are just other songs like 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 the opening three tracks of this album almost killed me are just uh, like perfect, just near perfect. Yeah. They yeah. kick off the band's ethos. They, you know, the, you know, started off with a positive jam. This seems to be one of those songs that is sort of, and again, as a lyricist, as a, as a writer, I'm sure Craig Finn understands this. It's, it's sort of one of those songs that's lodged in there, A, to connect to, to connect the narratives, the other narratives in the song. And, and I could point to other songs on other albums that do something similar, so I, we, could, we could talk about that later, but this is one of those songs that's like, I need this to sort of connect the thread in the way that writers of novels need that one 
chapter that isn't the fun, cool chapter to write, and it isn't the culmination. It's like, this is a this is a working peak chapter. This chapter has to do a lot of heavy lifting. I think this song is 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 actually one, 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 one of those songs. A ligament song. It's not bone. Yeah, it's a, not that, muscle. It's, it's connective tissue. It's a great way of thinking about it. It's a great metaphor. Yeah, this song when it comes on, it all it starts kind of like smack against a, a wall, and then the opening lines are "Pain Avenue lives up to its name." So we're opening with a pun. And then the second line is some nights it's painful and strange where they explain the pun. So I feel like Pain Avenue lives up to its name. Some nights it's painful and strange. Anytime you can open a song with a pun, you're on weird footing. And then if your follow up is to explain what you meant by the pun, that's kind of a tough way to start. Also, the piano just kind of chimes. It's the most jarring opening i think it just sort of smacks you and you're like okay we're in this song now i don't feel like it's a very elegant beginning yeah i agree i think when you compare it to sketchy metal is one thing we talked about that last week sketchy metal sort of creeps in and it never gets anywhere i feel i mean it's got some interesting riffs verbally but it's not really an interesting song. I think Pain Avenue, it feels more like the Billy Joel side of the spectrum to start, just with the heavy keyboard and the mid-tempo. But I think, to use the literary aspect, I think this is a scene-setting song. It really gets into Minneapolis a little bit more, uh, and the Twin Cities, St. Paul, obviously. And so you get the scene. I think there's something... I used to feel similarly. I used to feel hostile mass stops, and then we may as well go to killer parties. But in listening back, there's a lot that I think this song just pulls out of me that I really like. I love I love the dissonance between this sort of laid back, we're moving, we're hanging out sort of vibe at the beginning of the song with... They said they'd get us high, but that changed. Now they're down in the basement and they're bashing out his brains. There's just like something jarring there. But it's because <laughs> they've existed in that world. I think that's okay. I'll say we can get to the second half of the song later. But I, I, I do think that they get... This to me feels more like an achievement in getting a different vibe than the up-tempo stuff than Sketchy Metal did, for example. But I also think even... Outside of that, I would say it stands on its own. I've kind of come around to this is a song I can just put on and enjoy quite a bit. You, you, you know, Daniel, you, you talk about the dissonance between the sort of low tempo and then the, the lyrics meshing out their brains. They do that a lot, or Craig Finn does that a lot. There's a song on Teeth Dreams called The Ambassador, which is like oh, this gorgeous melody. And then it talks about, you know, gunfights and violence and, and shit that went down at this hotel called the, they call the ambassador. It's just, it, so he, this is a trope of Finn, of Craig Fence. He loves to do that. He loves to sort of like get this sort of moving melody going and then gut punch you with some of the lyric, lyrical images. So yeah, yeah. This one is really a funny left turn. They said they'd get us high, but that changed. It sounds like they just were out of weed or whatever, but no, it's much worse than that. It, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not only did they not have weed, <laughs> they're cutting you with motorcycle chains. Yeah. 
It's funny you mentioned one of the later albums is having, I think this is a weak point for me and Daniel is that we're less familiar with some of the later work because I associate what I know of the later albums as not being as deep into violent or jarring imagery. So sounds like I need to do some more listening because that's something that I found very appealing about the kind of gangster down in the muck lyrical content on the early albums. Maybe I just haven't given Craig Finn enough chance to have some more blood and guts in the, in the yeah. later later work. I mean, I, I wouldn't call it gangster. It's, it's, it's almost like you're saying that, that Craig's like, a you know, he was one time a member of, of like NWA or something. I, I don't think that that's the case. I think what he likes to talk about is that bartenders, the, you know, the, the rough crowd that sort of attaches itself to rock clubs that, you know, that may not be, you know, the kids who come in, but are on the periphery of sort of serving that. I've often just thought about Craig Finn's lyrics as perfectly describing what it was like to be young in the 1990s. People are going to have a good idea of what it was like. You'd go to these parties and these parties, they'd start ugly and then they'd get drug, druggy and they'd get bloody. Uh, and then all of a sudden, these other elements would show up, you know, to these parties that were probably a bit more violent. They'd wail on some, they'd wail on some kid, right? Yeah, I think that's sort of the ethos that he he loves to explore, at least in the early album, in particular. And I, and when again, when you get into Separation Sunday, you're going to see that sort of vision coalesce. I think. A positive jam is brought to you by Retro Gear Shop. Retro Gear Shop offers a unique selection of high-end musical instruments, recording equipment, and audio gear, and is sold to everyone from Pete Townsend to Arcade Fire to Wilco and more. Check out Retro Gear Shop at RetroGearShop.com and see why it's the premier high-end musical gear shop. Retro Gear Shop. What's interesting also... I don't know the ambassador well, but according to Genius.com, and then when you look at the lyrics, there is a connection. The ambassador takes place in Bay City again, which is the Michigan name drop. It references the tire shop, which is where Gideon was apparently working. So it's 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 also about the cityscapes or about skinheads and the cityscape skins, and so uh, which Craig asserts that's why Payne Avenue that was part of what he was thinking about. It was a uh, hotbed for racist skinheads in St. Paul. And so there is, he's still drawing on a similar well. And Mike, you said you were interested in talking about the cityscape skins. Cityscape skins are kind of kicking it again. They're gonna show these kids some... Yeah, this has like been something that I... The mentions of skinheads or shaved heads, which is a recurring image in Craig Finn's music, I've never been clear, and it's been ambiguous since I was in like junior high, the skinhead culture, which was, I grew up in Milwaukee, which has some affinities with the type of childhood you'd have in Minneapolis, although I think Minneapolis is a little bit more cosmopolitan, at least in the mid to late 90s. Regardless, there was this upswell of punk and punk-esque subculture taking hold among teenagers at that time. And one of the ways that manifested was skinhead culture. And 
it was always ambiguous to me whether the people who were into skinhead stuff were into the racist element of being skinheads, or there is apparently, if you look on Wikipedia, there's this thread of skinhead culture that is like anti-racist and left-wing and working class that either got co-opted by neo-Nazis or they eventually merged into something. And so my question is, are the cityscape skins a white supremacist gang or are they this sort of gentler type of, what type of skinhead are we talking about? I, I think that whenever whenever Craig is talking about skinheads, he's talking about a nefarious element in whatever subculture of whatever city he's talking about. There's a song, and I can't remember the name of the song, but it's on, there's a, there's a line in the song that there, there were skins in the pit. Some of them tried to kill me. So again, whenever skinheads make an appearance, they seem to be like, shit's going to go down, fights are going to erupt, violence is, gonna, is, violence is just on the periphery. We'd better be careful. I think that's that's where he's going with whatever he mentions skins, skinheads. Well, maybe that's like the because I also think of like the um, the famous Minor Threat album where I think it's a picture of Ian McKay, but he's got his head down, he's got the Doc Martin boots on, and he's got a shaved head. scared of my initially because i was like i like this music but i'm scared that they're (laughs) they're actually white supremacists because i didn't know any we didn't have the internet i didn't know anything about them and that reminds me of like going to basement shows in dc in like the early 2000s or just being in mosh pits there are guys with shaved heads who are like super aggro it sort of doesn't matter whether they're nazis or not because they are gonna like you mentioned there are these people that are just gonna like look to like knock other people around and they just have like all this pent up violence in their hearts. And here we got, they're going to show these kids some discipline, which kind of echoes that. So I guess, yeah. It's it's funny because the line from the song I just quoted, it's off heaven, heaven is whenever it's what's what I can't remember the name of the song, but the refrain of that song I just quoted skins in the pit. The refrain is no one wins at violent shows. And it just, that's the refrain. That's the coda. I just keep saying that over and over again. So I think that there's a, you know, a commentary on that element as well. And I was going to, I'm glad you brought up Minor Threat because I, I feel like when you watch, I'd never experienced either Minor Threat or Fugazi in person, but I feel like the stories were about Anne Mackay, like being quite vehement against the violent element. And so I feel like he would say that he was, co- his, not that he, he wouldn't say that he founded the movement, but that sort of hardcore straight edge, very purist movement you can see how it would be co-opted i think you know whether craig's trying to remind us of how close extremes can be or whether it's just a matter of saying no that was okay and this is not okay i I think that that's i I think that's a recurring thing in the hardcore punk scene that lifter puller certainly came out of and that the whole steady had some ties back to What, what, what one of the first punk songs i ever heard and again you didn't get much punk music in rural southern indiana back in the early 80s but it was uh, dead kennedy's nazi punks fuck off and again and this is back in the early 80s they were already there was already an element that was apparent that was an offshoot of punk that was violent and probably you know proto-fascist so 
even back then, people like, you know, a high profile guy like Jello Biafra was trying to read these guys out of the movement quite publicly. So. I would have bought that album. I was scared of the minus that one, but that one's very, it's unambiguous. It's very clear. <laughs> these guys are safe. I, 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 I think it's off Frankenfreis. <laughs> I could be wrong. That, that's that's the time. I think it's off Frankenfreis. There's a no effects song that's about being Jewish called The Bruise, where they say they're sporting anti swastika tattoos. And that was another one that scared me because I, all I heard was swastika. I couldn't quite tell what the anti was. And so, again, weird thing in, in punk music in general, there are often sort of allusions to or opposition to skinhead culture. At least growing up, I was like very confused by all. And when I see those guys in the mosh pit, I always like sort of want to trip them or like hurt them a little bit. Because <laughs> I'm a peace loving person, so I don't want them to like mess up the show for other people. That's probably exactly what they're looking for, though. So like speaking of all these fractures within a cultural movement, I think that's a good way to bring us into one of the key sort of thematic elements that gets introduced in this song for our audience. Sean here uh, is the co-founder of the Unified Scene Theater, which was a very important venue for me before he moved out of Washington, D.C., an improv theater where, among other things, he allowed me and my troops to perform comedy and some musical comedy. So it was important to the extent that I am a performer. Sean played an important role in that. And he named the theater, Sean, I think this is right, the Unified Scene after this idea from the Hold Steady, which I think makes its debut in this song, Sweet Pain. So what is that all about, Sean? I wish I could claim that it was as high-minded as you make it out to be, but it was a number of, it was, so it's funny, we, we've talked about punk rock here. My wife grew up in the punk rock scene in the 80s. She was in all the shows. She knew where Henry Rollins worked in, in, in the ice cream store in Georgetown. She she went to all the house shows. She was, she was heavily involved in the punk rock scene. When we opened the theater, we were kind of looking at the space as being like a punk rock improv theater, or at least at the very least having a, a musical bent and musical influence because we we're both, you know, we our music shaped our lives as they, they probably did yours as well. So we kept tossing around names and then I kept going back to... Nazi skinheads, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, Nazi punks fuck off. That would be great. Would have I mean, worked. If you yeah. can't brand that, I don't know what you know. It, is is it trademarked? Did did Jello trademark that phrase? Because if not, they're starting kids improv classes at the Nazi punks fuck off the Nazi punks theater. Fuck off theater. Just drop them off. We'll teach them. Don't worry. Again, that's Nazi punks fuck off theater. Follow us on social media. Facebook. Like us on Facebook. That's right. That's right. But we were sort of like both going going back to music, and I, I kept thinking about how you know how how much I enjoyed DC's improv scene, and how much I I you know I occasionally had a lot of cavils with DC's improv scene, and how you know I kind of and then it started like Germany, and wait 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 wait, and it's, it's so it just like seemed like a perfect way to talk about everything that both that we were both we were passionate about and what we were trying to accomplish in the theater, so.
And I had to do a little bit of due diligence, and I actually worried that either the Hold Steady themselves or the Hold Steady fans, fan base, would get very angry that I, that I did this because, you know, Unified Scene is what is sort of like the online community for a lot of Hold Steady fans. And so I made sure that I did not, like, I didn't trademark it. I didn't, I just named the theater and managed the LLC as the Unified Scene Theater. I just didn't want to do any sort of like, I just, in, in the sense that I would have to, you know, there would be any sort of cease and desist letters on my part if someone, or, or, or vice versa. So, so I was trying to be careful about that. I never heard from the band about this and I never, I never heard from anyone in the Unified Scene. Like I'm sure there are, you know, tons of fans in DC about, you know, I never got pushback and I never got any C&D letter from the band or anything like that, which, for which I'm grateful. Because that would have been heartbreaking, but yeah, so that's 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 kind of how it all started, how we came to name 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 our theater that. For me, this that line, I always dream about a unified scene, resonated with me a lot when I was first listening to this album in like 2005, 2006. I was living in D.C. and I like wanted to be a writer. I wanted to express myself creatively in all these ways. I wrongly, I think, viewed D.C. as a sort of anti-creative environment and so i decided to move out soon after that to tacoma washington uh, where there was plenty of opportunities to i became a bartender and sort of explored the type of lifestyle our drugs are for bartenders right so i so i became a bartender in in tacoma washington and like lived the nightlife in in that way and then i got a chance to move to new york and i was like i with all these like people who are a little more creative. And I always like, I did always have this aspiration since high school to, to live in a kind of nurturing creative environment where people were like supportive of each other. And I think that that line and that theme and that concept, I'm really connected to it because I think those things do emerge and, but they're in like tiny little fleeting pockets and they're brief where everyone is kind of in a cooperative pulling in the same direction. I don't think it tends to last. And maybe that's why I feel like a lot of people want that, but it's like nearly impossible to achieve a kind of creative community like that. Creative community like what? Where, yeah, where people are like, I don't know. I wanted to be in a rock band since I was like, in sixth grade and I just could never seem to find people who like the same music or I wasn't good enough at playing my instrument or singing or doing anything to make the connection with people to form a band and I always maybe like was too hyper specific in my own preferences to sort of give other people a chance to for us to work together and a lot of people probably make this excuse for themselves I think it's also true of me that like I do a lot of my best work in direct collaboration with other people. And it's hard to find people who are who will make the time for it or who will give another person a chance as a sort of collaborator or, or, or equal, equal creative force. And so maybe you have to force that a little more. I don't know, Sean, to some extent, I think you achieved that with your theater in the sense that people did, did, come, did come together. Anyway, I think 
I'd, now that I'm a little bit older and a little bit more open and just will just more proactive in seeking other people out to connect with, I'm less frustrated in that way. But 10, 15 years ago, I was very much like, where is this group of people that will just want to do what I want to do so we can just like go? So this line really meant something to me. Very cool. Yeah. At that time. I think I, I was... My last semester in college, I lived with friends who were in a band, and I remember, like, they, they would, I sort of felt like the fourth or fifth wheel. We had somebody else in the house who wasn't in the band, but he had no musical interest. Like, I played guitar at the time, but I wasn't nearly as talented as them, and I remember that I played, you know, I played trombone on one of their tracks on their initial EP, but then they didn't invite me to play at a concert, like all this oh, no. sort of little jealousies among friends. They took, they covered a couple of my songs, but it wasn't like, and they would play behind me sometimes, but I felt like solo and they were together. So I get the, that like tension that comes there. I also think if you'll allow me, I think that's, that's where I can make the argument that this is one of the songs on the record. Cause I think the message that Craig is getting at and the hold steady, it's all from, positive jam it's kids looking up at me it's all trying to forge some sort of communion and some community among music unlike some of the later hold steady stuff where it's a little bit it's not as earned perhaps the first half is a little bit gritty but it feels like it's building up some tension as we said and then when you get to that you get into the reach into the speaker and try to hold on to the quarter notes and then you have the boo doo boo reach into the I think they're those fuzzy notes are the quarter notes that that's come on, but that's where you really build up the anticipation. And then he goes, I always dream about a unified scene. And that's like the, that's, that's basically the last climax of the album, which stretches from there. I don't know which James King he's referring to, but I, he's still just the, like the quick switching in and out of names that sound in a couple cases are real. I think the final punch of, and this is maybe where you get into those jealousies, even though you have a unified scene if somebody tells us that their friend looks like Jada Pinkett, well, come on. Like, that's just not accurate. And so I just felt like that. Because I've seen your friend, she looks nothing like Jada Pinkett. I think you got something in those cigarettes. That to me is like really just a driving punch with this big dramatic music. And this is the song's called Sweet Pain. The most famous song it echoes is Sweet Jane, which is also you know, city scenes and sort of grittiness. It's a little bit different lyrical themes, but also, at least in the full version, has that sort of huge bridge that builds up to a strong finish. And then Craig has been quoted as saying his favorite line on the record is the Gideon living up in South Minneapolis because it evokes these random dudes he used to see in South Minneapolis. 
I looked it up, South Minneapolis also where some lifter puller stuff goes down. I just feel like it's really, it sets the scene. It sets the scene for Craig, but then also the motto and the mission in a denouement, that denouement that fits with where we are in the album and sort of brings us home. So that's, I mean, I, I, I always, I, I get why it doesn't stand out as much as some of the other hits, but that's how I feel about it. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Every time I hear this song, I wonder what the, what counts as quarter notes in the guitar line that follows. And I, I, I just never bothered to like diagram it out and figure it out. But I do have, I'm like, is it the first part? Are those quarter notes or is it those little, little doot doot doots that come a little bit later? I think it's the doot doot doots. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Good. We're on the same page. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Also, synesthesia. There's your AP lit concept. Reach holding on to quarter notes, not physically possible, but emerging of sensory experiences. First popularized by Baudelaire in 19th century French poetry. So also gritty urban stuff happening there. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Shout out to Charles Baudelaire, one of the main patriarchs of Payne Avenue type lyricism. So speaking of the many uh lines I misheard when I first listened to this album, I was thinking the Yukon Club had to do with the University of Connecticut. And I probably oh! was thinking that the Phillies had to do with the baseball team. I was very young and dumb at the time. But Phillies. I all the little Phillies, the smallest players on the Philadelphia Phillies. <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're over six feet, <laughs> yeah. So, so so not Larry Boa, right? Yeah, yeah. He's at the Saskatoon Club down the <laughs> Phillies. What a word for that's a ladies, right? A little Kanye esque gold digger aspect there. I think it ends strong. That's where I. I sing along with the Phillies at the Yukon Club lines. So I think it does get somewhere. I think the solo is great. The lines that Daniels brought up are really fun. Ma. Map Corner. Welcome to the Map Corner for Sweet Pain, the most Twin Cities rooted song on Almost Killed Me, as we mentioned. A lot of interesting things to break down, so let's go into it. Payne Avenue runs north-south in St. Paul, between Forest Lawn Memorial Park and Swede Hollow Park, ending at 7th Street, which then runs southwest into downtown and lower town, where it was going down and most people are DJs. Craig Finn apparently describes it as a place that looks nice in the day, but a little sinister at night, and according to him, it was a hotbed for racist skinheads. St. Paul beyond being a recurring location as one of the Twin Cities, was an actual saint, of course, and we learn on the Hold Cities next record that St. Paul was the hardest luck saint of them all, though by the time we get to the end of that record, the St. Paul Saints, the famous independent league baseball team, are waving Holly through. Getting back to Payne Avenue, according to St. Paul Historical Society, in the 19th century and turn of the 20th century, Payne Avenue was a home for Italian Irish, German, and Scandinavian immigrants, and it continued to attract immigrants into more recent times, including Latin American, Asian, and African immigrants. Sweet Hollow was something between a slum and immigrant housing, 
started by Swedes, of course, though housing Mexican immigrants by World War II. It was cleared out due to a lack of amenities like water service or sewers in the 1950s, though this is also the era of urban renewal. In any case, it's now a park. HistoricStPaul.org calls it one of the liveliest streets in town, once known as Downtown of Northeastern Ramsey County. I can't corroborate Craig's point about it being a hotbed for bad activity, but there was an article from 2013 in the Min Post pegging the neighborhood as the next hip neighborhood, which, when you consider how cycles of poverty and gentrification work, lines up pretty well in the timeline with this song and Craig's claim. Let's move over to another part of the Upper Midwest, Michigan. Bay City, specifically. On a previous episode, as I think I might have mentioned before, we discussed the idea that Craig just drops names for the hell of it. Bay City is a hell of a name. It is most famously the hometown of a one Madonna Luis Ciccone, the famous pop star. It is not where the roller derby team Bay City Bombers is from, and it is not where the 70s Scottish pop sensation Bay City Rollers are from. Though in the latter case, they supposedly named themselves after throwing a dart on the map that hit Bay City. Bay City's pretty close to Saginaw and Flint, but it's detached from the Detroit orbit. And of course, Michigan looks like a midden, whether you get high or not. I remember telling my wife, who is from the state, back when we were first dating, that Michigan looks just like a midden, quoting this line. She just said, come on, it always looks like a midden. You don't have to get high. Let's go back to Minneapolis, specifically South Minneapolis. This is south of downtown, between Lake Street and Franklin Avenue, per Craig's description. He talks about there being a lot of weird cowboy dudes and western-themed bars, such as the Yukon Club. It's also where the Man Park is, or at least where the action in Man Park, off Lifter Puller's last album, takes place, at the corner of 15th and Franklin. Neighborhoods here include Ventura Village, not related to Jesse Ventura, the former governor, best I can tell, and Phillips. This area was the subject of a gentrification study by U of M two years ago amidst fears of uptowning. Message board posts cite high crime in the area. And I should say that we recorded this well before the murder of George Floyd that put Minneapolis back in the national spotlight. Floyd was killed in South Minneapolis, a few miles down from where I just mentioned. Among all the coverage in the wake of this event, there's been a lot of discussion on how segregated and unequal the Twin Cities are, despite their progressive reputation. For example, Justin Ellis in The Atlantic wrote about why Minneapolis had this coming, with Lake Street featuring prominently. What does this all say about Sweet Pain? It seems the melding of worlds and the fine line between the neat surface and the underbelly is crossed easily in either Twin City, on either bank of the Mississippi. We'll get back to the stratification of the Twin Cities in a few episodes when we speak with a couple area natives about the scene. But this is the milieu Craig Finn liked to explore, at least in the early stages of the band. Okay, back to our discussion. Final thoughts on on Sweet Pain. So I'm going to get sort of like like a high level here, literary stuff. Apologies. Northrop Fry once said that... <laughs> I, I know. Just stay with me. Stay that apology with me. was entirely justified. I was going to talk you down, but North of Pride, <laughs> um, that's okay. That's the, you just taught Daniel's reference to the extended version of Sweet Jane. Now we're, in, <laughs> now we're jumped a level, but go ahead. Oh, Sorry, wait, 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 wait. We, we, we've gone from Baudelaire. Can, can I go to North of Pride? Is, <laughs> all right, all right. Baudelaire is 
is probably you, you went from images poetry to can I can I go to twentieth century lit literature? Yeah, yeah, literary. please, please. But I mean, wow, that's a deep cut for me. So, Northrop Fry once said that all of Shakespeare's plays are in essence about the theater, regardless of whether they're histories, comedies, strategies. They are in essence about the theater, and I think he has a point there. I think that all of the Hold Steady's albums are about the New Testament. That they are, and again, not, not just Separation Sunday, which is almost blatantly about birth, death, birth, death, fall, resurrection, that narrative arc. You can even see it that, that Almost Killed Me is the blueprint for the sort of like rough blueprint for what, what awaits the band later. And again, it's at the beginning with Positive Jam, it's John the Baptist saying, good news, good news, good news, he's coming. The Savior's coming. And then we get this series of characters and we see these narrative arcs come. And again, at the end of the New Testament, if you've read it, maybe you haven't, it, there's revelation. And so we see at the end of at Killer Parties, we, I remember we departed for, from our bodies, right? That's, that's revelation. That sweet pain is the, the unlocking of the seals. It's boom, I opened the seventh seal. I opened this and this and this. I think that's Craig Finn's way of describing the, what happens pre-revelation, which is shit goes down. We go for a drug deal to try to get high and we get the shit beat out of us with tire chain. So that's sort of my sort of over, I see just about every single Hold Steady album up until Heaven is Whenever in this sort of like narrative arc. It's, it's almost a New Testament-esque narrative arc. So, and, and again, Mike, you went to a Jesuit school, so this should resonate. Right? Yeah, no, I think we've been trying to put our fingers on the tension between being like down in the muck and this sort of quest for a sort of elevated experience and, and some search for spirituality as we've d gone through most of the songs on the album. And it, we've had a hard time, I think, pinning down what it was in your, your New T Testament framework. I mean, it obviously scans with Craig Finn's background and his sort of constant reference in interviews to Catholicism. The Hold Steady is the most Catholic band on the planet. And I don't, and I mean that in all senses, right? It's heavily influenced by Craig Finn's Catholicism, but it's very Catholic in that it's not out of school, right? Every, you know, all the songs are anthem-esque. They, they could easily have appeared on a Bruce, Bruce Springsteen album in different form. It's chant, sing-along, you know, uh, high energy. There's ballads, right? They're, not only are they Catholic in their philosophical outlook, the whole city are Catholic in their musical taste. <laughs> they are not out-of-school rock and roll. They're old-school rock and roll. I remember I have a thing of Lester Bangs somewhere. He called Black Sabbath the most Catholic band in the... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> So. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that everything in the whole study is about music, which is probably, I agree that New Testament definitely is a more expansive framework, to, but I feel like a lot if, of that. If I were to say everything about the whole study is about music, you could just reach to the screen and just punch me in the fucking face because <laughs> everything <laughs> about. <laughs> No, you know what the whole city is about? It's about music. <laughs> no, but I, the same way that Shakespeare is about theater, all the songs are about the scene, about the that, that not 
<laughs> I wasn't trying to reduce. You know it. what this book is about? This book's about reading, man. It's about reading. <laughs> I, I, hold on to your seat. <laughs> but Black Sabbath is the most Catholic. Bit. It was just just the idea of Catholicism as not, and maybe that's Mike and I have both kind of dropped off the whole study. The last album I listened to it all was Stay Positive. And I think perhaps we dropped out of it because it, the New Testament is pretty, the Old Testament is considered the heavier stuff, but I think the New Testament still has its trials and travails, whether it's the 40 or there's bad stuff that happens or there's, there's tension that happens. There's drama in the arc that to us maybe isn't as heartfelt in the later albums. This made me think of the the Catholic band championship belt is the number one Catholic band through. So if you start with black Sabbath, then I don't know where you go through the seventies. I'm like, Google, it was in Irish. I go Irish. And then I'm like, well, they don't have to be Catholic. In fact, I, you could easily get something wrong. looks like Bono had a Catholic dad and oh, a yeah. Protestant oh, oh, mom. I mean, you too is an easily a, a Catholic band. They, yeah. they count as Catholic. Oh, I'm, I, I think Bon. I think U2 is a Christian rock band masquerading as a, as a mainstream rock band. Okay, so let's count them. We'll put them in the Catholic pile. So you got you go yeah, Black yeah. Sabbath, and then let's say the '70s to be determined later. Then in the '80s, it's got to be U2, which was like the biggest band on the planet. And if we count them as Catholic, and then you get late '80s, maybe like Sinead O'Connor. It's, she seemed to reject a lot of Catholicism. She rejected it, but rejecting Catholicism is sort of part of the Catholic deal, yeah, right? So <laughs> that's true. It's like, <laughs> and then late nineties. I don't know. You kind of you kind of run out of gas. It's real real thin there. And then and then I guess the hold steady found that sort of gap in the market and picked picked, <laughs> right, the, right. picked the flag back up <laughs> in the mid two thousands. So to be determined, we have a couple gaps in the timeline there. But um. <laughs> can't you throw Springsteen in there? Springsteen for the is Springsteen Catholic? Yeah, I, I I think he was raised Catholic. He was raised Catholic. Yeah. He was raised Catholic. Certainly is moralistic enough to rediscover his Catholic roots. Yeah, it, to me, feels like his drama is very. My dad thought he was Jewish, but that's my Russian mother. <laughs> Didn't everyone thinks Springsteen? There are Muslims who are like, I think he's Muslim. You know, right. <laughs> like everyone sort of just grabs him. <laughs> Belongs to us all, really. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Sweet pain. My wrap up is the redemption idea through this unified scene. And it this all this stuff echoes what we talked about in Sketchy Metal, where and it echoes Sean's point about New Testament and how stuff is really going down. But it's almost as though you have to go through this violent or degrading experience to come out on the other end and approach something more divine. There's a line in this song about the cherubim, the girl, the girl's ODing, but then she's seeing angels. And it's kind of like, that's basically the whole studies deal. You OD and then you see angels. That's kind of the whole thing in the band in a sentence kind of deal. So for all of its sort of what I consider a pretty flat start and for all it's sort of, I don't ever remember a live performance of this that stuck out as like the highlight of the show or anything. This does have a lot of the structure, like Sean said, of this kind of 
of this Christian arc. And it's, it's why the whole city was able to rip the mantle of Catholic champion rock band from <laughs> Creed or whoever it was who managed to scrape it up in the late 90s. So there you go. Sweet pain. Sweet pain. Sweet pain. Sweet pain. Cool. Thanks to Sean Westfall. You can follow him on Twitter at at Sean Westfall. He spells Sean with a W. Fall with two L's and an F. Thanks, of course, to the whole study. As a disclaimer, all song clips are owned by their creators. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our feed wherever you get podcasts. And give us some of those sweet, sweet stars by rating us on Apple Podcasts. And if you feel like typing, leave us a review. We really appreciate it. Next week, we're talking killer parties. And I will be explaining how I lost so very many lovers. Because federal agents kept raiding our restaurants on no-knock warrants. But that's for next time. In the meantime, to get in touch, DM us at at Shortman Studios on Twitter. Or email us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. All right. Take care.